Chapter 6, Part 2 of National Gambling Impact Study Commission Final Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. National Gambling Impact Study Commission Final Report, Chapter 6 Native American Tribal Gambling, Part 2 Local Community Impacts Local regulations such as zoning, building, and environmental codes do not apply on Indian lands. Tribal governments do, however, sometimes adopt local building and other health and safety codes as tribal laws. State and local governments usually provide and service infrastructure such as roads and bridges near reservations that are relied on by tribal gambling facilities. In some instances, state and local governments may provide water, sewage treatment, and electrical service to a tribal casino, and tribes may be charged and pay for such services. In addition, tribal governments often conclude agreements with the local governments for certain essential governmental services, such as fire and emergency medical services, or enter into reciprocal agreements to provide such services with an agreed level of compensation. Two of the largest Indian gambling enterprises in the United States remit substantial funds to the state that are then redistributed by the state on a formula to local communities. Footnote. Together, the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation and the Mohegan Nation are forecasted to contribute $294 million to the state of Connecticut in fiscal year 1999, of which $135 million will be redistributed directly to towns. 1999-2001 to 2001 Biennium, Governor's Budget Summary, Connecticut, John G. Rowland Governor, page A3, A7, A12, 1999. Tribal representatives often point to positive economic and social impacts of Indian casinos on neighboring communities. According to a study funded by five gambling tribes and presented at the subcommittee's hearing at the Gila River Indian Community, quote, in addition to positive economic and social impacts on reservations, the available evidence also demonstrates that tribes contribute to local economies through taxes, revenue sharing, employment of non-Indians, contributions to local charities, and a myriad of other ways. Furthermore, the case study tribal casinos we analyzed did not appear to have discernible negative impacts on off-reservation sales or crime rates. End quote. A similar view has been expressed by Richard G. Hill, chairman of the National Indian Gaming Association. Quote, NIGA encourages all those who would disparage Indian governmental gaming to, first, add up all the benefits to their own communities from Indian gaming and what would happen to the jobs and businesses if Indian nations and their economic development were no longer there. Those opponents of Indian governmental gaming who self-righteously speak about morality and states' rights would have much greater problems to deal with than poor, starving Indians. End quote. In many cases, local government officials acknowledge the positive economic impact of tribal gambling, but voice concerns regarding other matters. For example, William R. Hossie, planning director for the town of Ledyard, Connecticut, near the Foxwoods Casino, owned by the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation, stated that, quote, the three local host communities, Ledyard, Preston, and North Stonington, with a combined population of only 25,300, find it difficult to cope with the magnitude of Foxwoods Casino, 
primarily in the areas of diminished quality of life due to tremendous increases in traffic along local roads and state highways, deteriorating highway infrastructure, and increased policing and emergency services costs. Although confined to a 2,300-acre federally recognized Indian reservation, Foxwoods has expanded so rapidly that the host towns and Connecticut Department of Transportation have been unable to keep up. Fortunately, the adverse effects of Foxwoods are confined primarily to the immediate surrounding host communities, and problems diminish with distance. End quote. Footnote. William R. Hasse, Testimony Before the National Gambling Impact Study Commission, Boston, Massachusetts, March 16, 1998. Planning Director, Town of Ledyard, Connecticut. Mr. Hasse addressed the commission during the bus trip to Foxwoods Casino, and not during the regular meeting. He also indicated that the problem was less with the tribe reimbursing the local communities for the costs they incurred from the nearby presence of the Foxwoods Casino than with the state of Connecticut's failure to share sufficiently the revenues it obtained from the same casino. And footnote. Similarly, Supervisor Diane Jacob of San Diego, California, while noting that her county government, quote, has had some success in establishing a government-to-government -government relationship with the members of the tribes in her supervisorial district, end quote, also pointed out that local governments incur the costs of law enforcement for gaming-related crimes, whether they are property crimes that occur at a casino or more serious crimes related to individuals who have been at a casino. For example, the San Diego County Sheriff, who is responsible for law enforcement adjacent to all three of the reservations in San Diego County, on which there is gambling, responded to almost 1,000 calls for service in 1996 alone. Supervisor Jacob also testified at length about two tribal land acquisitions that had been proposed but not yet approved in her district. In both of these situations, the impact on residents of adjacent communities, in terms of traffic, crime, and property devaluation, would have been devastating. Quote, it is one thing to respect the sovereignty of existing tribal lands, but another to annex lands simply for the purpose of circumventing local land use and zoning regulations. End quote. Many tribes have voluntarily entered into agreements with neighboring local governments to address these types of issues. Howard Dickstein, an attorney representing the Palaband of Mission Indians in California, explained to the Commission how such agreements can be reconciled with tribal sovereignty. Quote, I think the Pala and other tribes that I represent have determined that in an era when tribes have begun to interact with other non-reservation governments and clearly have off-reservation impacts because of their on-reservation activities, what sovereignty requires is negotiation with those other governments that represent those non-reservation constituencies and reaching agreements and accommodations that allow those other governments to protect their interests, but maintain the tribe's interests, and allow the tribes to protect their interests. End quote. Economic Development Only a limited number of independent studies exist regarding the economic and social impact of Indian gambling. Some have found a mixture of positive and negative results of the impact of gambling on reservations whereas others have found a positive economic impact for the tribal governments, its members, and the surrounding communities. This is an area greatly in need of further research. However, it is clear from the testimony that the subcommittee received that the revenues from Indian gambling have had a significant, and generally positive, impact on a number of reservations. IGRA requires that the revenues generated by Indian gambling facilities 
he used to fund tribal government operations and programs, the general welfare of the Indian tribe and its members, and tribal economic development, among other uses. This includes essential governmental services such as education, health, and infrastructure improvements. According to the chairman of the National Indian Gaming Commission, many tribes have used their revenues, quote, to build schools, fund social services, provide college scholarships, build roads, provide new sewer and water systems, and provide for adequate housing for tribal members, end quote. Many tribes are providing more basic services. One example is the Prairie Island Indian Community. Their representative testified before the Commission's Subcommittee on Indian Gambling that, quote, We no longer rely only on government funding to pay for the basics. We have used gaming proceeds to build better homes for our members, construct a community center and an administration building, develop a wastewater treatment facility, and build safer roads. We are also able to provide our members with excellent health care benefits and quality education choices. We are currently working with the Mayo Clinic on a diabetic study of Native Americans. We can provide chemical dependency treatment to any tribal member who needs assistance and our education assistance program allows tribal members to choose whatever job training, college, or university they wish to attend. End quote. A representative of the Viejas Band of Kumeyaay Indians also testified that, quote, Our gaming revenues provide such government services as police, fire, and ambulance to our reservation, neighbors, and casino. Earnings from gaming have paved roads, provided electricity, sewage lines, clean water storage, recycling, trash disposal, natural habitat replacement, and watershed and other environmental improvements to our lands. End quote. Other tribal governments report the development of sewage management projects, energy assistance, housing, job training, conservation, education, native language programs, and many other services that previously were absent or poorly funded before the introduction of gambling. There also has been an emphasis by many tribes on using gambling revenues for preserving cultural practices and strengthening tribal bonds. For some, Indian gambling provides substantial new revenue to the tribal government. For others, Indian gambling has provided little or no net revenue to the tribal government, but has provided jobs for tribal members. One estimate of employment at Indian gambling facilities puts the figure at 100,000 jobs. Indian gambling provides jobs for Indian tribal members in areas where unemployment has often exceeded 50% of the adult age population. Many of the casinos also employ non-Indian people and therefore can have a significant positive economic impact on surrounding communities, as well as for many small businesses near Indian reservations. Footnote. Economic Contributions of Indian Tribes to the Economy of Washington State. Virginia Tiller, Ph.D., Tiller Research, Inc., and Robert A. Chase, Chase Economics, 1999. This study was a partnership effort commissioned by the State of Washington and the Washington State Tribal Governments. See also Economic Benefits of Indian Gaming in the State of Oregon, James M. Kloss and Matthew S. Robinson, June 1996, and Statistics on the Economic Impact of Indian Gaming, National Indian Gaming Association, February 1997. End footnote. Although the impact varies greatly, tribal gambling has significantly decreased the rates of unemployment for some tribes. For example, the subcommittee received testimony that stated that, for the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwes in Minnesota, unemployment has decreased from about 60% in 1991 to 2.5% in 
to almost zero at present. For the Oneida tribe of Wisconsin, the unemployment rate dropped from nearly 70% to less than 5% after their casino opened. Representatives from the Gila River Indian community testify that unemployment on their reservation has decreased from 40% to 11% since the introduction of gambling. The Coeur d'Alene tribe reported a decrease in the unemployment rate from 55% to 22%. A number of other tribes have reported similar results. The subcommittee also heard much testimony about the pride, optimism, hope, and opportunity that has accompanied the revenues and programs generated by Indian gambling facilities. As one tribal representative stated, quote, Gaming has provided a new sense of hope for the future among a nation that previously felt too much despair and powerlessness as a result of our long-term poverty and a renewed interest in the past. The economic development generated by gaming has raised our spirits and drawn us close together. End quote. The chairman of the Hopi tribe testified before this commission, quote, One need only visit an Indian casino to realize that a significant number of casino patrons are Indian people from the reservations on which the casino is located, or from other nearby reservations, including non-gaming reservations. I believe it is also safe to conclude that most Indian people do not routinely have a surplus disposable income which should be expended on games of chance. Most of our people on most reservations and tribal communities find it difficult enough to accumulate enough income on a monthly basis to meet the most basic needs of their families. While the decision to expend those funds in gaming activities is an individual choice, the impacts on family members who frequently do not participate in that choice are nevertheless affected. End quote. Employment Laws and Indian Tribal Governments the applicability of federal labor laws to tribal governments and their business enterprises is a controversial and much-discussed issue in federal courts. Two federal statutes concerning employment issues expressly exclude tribes from coverage, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and Title I of the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. In addition, certain other non-discrimination laws have been held not to apply where the alleged discrimination was in regards to admission to membership in the tribe. All other federal statutes regarding employment are silent. Some federal courts of appeals, however, have held that the following federal laws do apply to on-reservation tribal businesses under fact-specific circumstances. The Occupational Safety and Health Act, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, and the Fair Labor Standards Act. The National Labor Relations Act, NLRA, permits employees to form unions and to bargain collectively with their employer. The law does not contain language that expressly applies the act to Indian tribes, nor does it expressly exempt Indian tribes from the act's coverage. However, the act does expressly exempt government entities. The National Labor Relations Board, NLRB or Board, which hears disputes brought under the act in the first instance, has addressed the issue of whether the act applies to Indian tribes and has twice held that a tribally owned and operated business located on Indian lands is exempt from the act under the act's exemption for government entities. Similarly, at least one court has ruled that the NLRA does not apply to tribal governments. An important case on the subject, Fort Apache Timber Company, was decided by the board in 1976. In this case, the board ruled that it lacked jurisdiction over the White Mountain Apache tribe and a wholly owned and operated enterprise of the tribe. 
central to the board's ruling was the recognition that the tribe was a government and thus exempt from the act. Quote, Consistent with our discussion of authorities recognizing the sovereign government character of the tribal council in the political scheme of this country, it would be possible to conclude that the council is the equivalent of a state or an integral part of the government of the United States as a whole, and as such specifically excluded from the Acts Section 2.2 definition of employer. We deem it unnecessary to make that finding here, however, as we conclude and find that the tribal council and its self-directed enterprise on the reservation that is here asserted to be an employer are implicitly exempt as employers within the meaning of the act. End quote. The Federal District Court for the District of Oregon expressly agreed with the board's position in Fort Apache Timber and similarly ruled that the Confederated Tribes of the Warm Springs Reservation was not an employer for the purposes of the NLRA. The court held, however, that a business operated by a tribal corporation was covered by the NLRA. It should be noted that the board has expressly held, and the D.C. Circuit Court has upheld, that the Act's provisions apply to private employers operating on reservations. Similarly, the board has applied the NLRA to a joint venture between a tribal employer and a non-tribal employer on a reservation. In addition, the board has also held that the Act applies to businesses wholly owned and operated by a tribe if the business is located off-reservation. The applicability of state labor law to tribal gambling employers is significantly less complex. Absent some showing that Congress has consented, the states have no power to regulate activity conducted on an Indian reservation. Thus, tribal labor laws apply, and state labor laws do not apply to tribal gambling employers under the federal law. State laws that would be inapplicable include workers' compensation, state unemployment insurance, state minimum wage, daily or weekly overtime, state disability insurance programs, protection against discrimination for race, sex, age, religion, disability, etc., protection of minors, no authorized deductions from paychecks, no kickbacks or wage rebates, mandatory day of rest, payment of wages at least semi-monthly, no payment in scrip, coupons, or IOUs, no required purchases at company store, and payment in full to terminated workers. It should be noted that most states have laws of the types listed, but some states do not. Other states have additional laws not on the list. State labor law varies considerably with respect to the rights of state government employees. Under these laws, 28 states allow their employees to organize but not to strike. Nine states permit employees to strike in limited instances, Eleven states put limits on the areas that are subject to negotiations, and eight states do not grant their employees a right to bargain collectively. However, citizens of those states have the right to vote for their state and local government officials. Although tribal members make up a majority of tribal casino employees in a few smaller rural tribal casinos, the great majority of tribal casino employees are not Native Americans. For example, in California, more than 95% of the estimated 15,000 tribal casino employees are not Indians. At Foxwoods in Connecticut, there are a little more than 500 members of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation and more than 13,000 employees. In Boston, the Commission heard extensive testimony on the issue of applicability of labor law to tribal employers. Connecticut Attorney General Richard Blumenthal urged the Commission to, quote, apply basic worker protections in federal and state law to the tribal employers 
or require the tribes to enact laws and ordinances or protections that are commensurate with the federal protections. End quote. Noting that Indian casinos have created thousands of badly needed jobs in southeastern Connecticut, Connecticut State Senator Edith Prague, chair of the Labor Committee for the Connecticut General Assembly, gave testimony on the relationship between tribal sovereignty and workers' rights. Quote, Federally recognized tribes enjoy sovereignty which is guaranteed under the Constitution of the United States. Along with sovereignty, there is a responsibility to maintain a basic respect for human rights. This is the balance we need. The reason there is no balance at Foxwoods is because of how the Mashantucket Pequots have chosen to use their sovereign rights. I am not opposed to sovereignty. I am, however, opposed to a tribe using sovereignty as a weapon to shield themselves from having to behave fairly and decently with their workers. There are just over 500 members of the Mashantucket Pequot tribe. There are just over 13,000 workers at Foxwoods Casino. Some of them may be Mashantucket Pequots. The great majority of them are not. And what rights do these workers have? End quote. In addition, the commission heard testimony from former employees of the Foxwoods Casino including Fred Sinclair, who described his experience there. Quote, I am part Cherokee, and I support the dream of the Pequots and their success. I was at the original employer rally in 1992, and actually believed that they cared about their employees. I put my heart, soul, and thousands of uncompensated hours into Foxwoods. Even though my part may be considered small, I helped the Pequots achieve their dream, only to be severely injured, harassed, stripped of my position, my rights, my job, and my health benefits by the abusive upper management they are responsible for. End quote. Tribal representatives have disputed employee claims of poor working conditions. According to Richard G. Hill, chairman of the National Indian Gaming Association, quote, The record clearly shows Indian nations provide good jobs, often with wages in excess of the federal minimum wage, health care, retirement, burial insurance, and other fringe benefits. Indian nation gaming jobs are generally better than other jobs available in the community. We agree that unemployment insurance and workmen's compensation should be available under a tribal system, or the tribe should participate in a state or federal plan. We reject the notion that Indian nation non-Indian employees have no rights. Indians and non-Indians are permitted access to grievance procedures at every Indian gaming facility. This objection infers Indian nations cannot run fair grievance systems and is code for the implication that Indians are not able to govern themselves. This is an extremely prejudicial claim. No Indian nation testified against unionization. In fact, Indian people generally perceive union members as working people like themselves. End quote. Although some tribes do not favor unionization, other tribes have taken an alternative approach by entering into labor agreements covering tribal gambling employees. Testifying before the subcommittee in Seattle, Apasanaquat, chairman of the Menominee Indian Tribe of Wisconsin, described one such voluntary agreement between his tribal government and a group of unions covering the tribe's proposed off-reservation casino in Kenosha, Wisconsin. This groundbreaking agreement affirms the tribe's sovereignty and guarantees the rights of tribal gambling employees to organize themselves, join unions, and bargain collectively. Among other things, it provides for employer neutrality on the issue of unionization, union access to employee dining and break rooms, and binding arbitration to settle disputes. The tribe also agrees to participate in the state's unemployment and workers' compensation programs. 
For their part, the unions agree not to engage in strikes, slowdowns, picketing, sit-ins, boycotts, hand-billing, or other economic activity against the tribe's casino. Other Issues for Consideration Taxation Few topics regarding Indian gambling have generated more controversy and heated dispute than the subject of taxation. As governmental entities, tribal governments are not subject to federal income taxes. Instead, the Internal Revenue Service classifies tribal governments as non-taxable entities. As Indian casinos are owned and often operated by the tribes, the net revenues from these facilities go directly into the coffers of the tribal governments. Some proponents of Indian gambling argue that these revenues are thus taxed at a rate of 100%. As noted above, IGRA requires that the revenues generated by Indian gambling facilities be used for tribal governmental services and for the economic development of the tribe. To the extent that the revenues are used for these purposes, they are not subject to federal taxes. The major exception concerns per capita payments of gambling revenues to eligible tribal members. According to IGRA, if any gambling revenues remain after a tribe's social and economic development needs have been met, and its tribal government operations have been sufficiently funded, then per capita distributions can be made to eligible tribal members if approval is granted by the Secretary of the Interior. Individuals receiving this income are then subject to federal income taxes as ordinary income. State income taxes, however, do not apply to Indians who live on reservations and who derive their income from tribal enterprises. State income tax does apply to non-Indians working at Indian casinos, and to Indians living and working off the reservations, as well as to those Indians who live on reservations, but who earn their income at non-tribal operations off the reservations. In general, state and local government taxes do not apply to tribes or tribal members living on reservations. However, many of the state tribal compacts that have been negotiated contain provisions for payments by the tribes to state governments, which may or may not then allocate some of the proceeds to local governments. These payments most commonly include reimbursement of the state's share of the costs of regulating tribal gambling facilities or similar types of services. But there are examples in which the state has required payment from tribes merely as a quid pro quo for concluding a compact. For example, in its compact with the Mashantucket Pequots, the state of Connecticut receives 25% of the proceeds from slot machines at the Foxwoods Casino in return for maintaining the tribe's monopoly shared along with the nearby Mohegan Sun Casino on the Mohegan Reservation, on slot machines in the state. In addition to these mandatory compacts, many tribes have negotiated voluntary agreements with neighboring communities in which compensation is provided for fire protection, ambulance service, and similar functions provided to the tribe. Exclusivity Payments Tribes in some states have made voluntary payments to states in exchange for the exclusive right to conduct casino-type gambling on a large scale when states allow charitable casino nights but not commercial casinos. These exclusivity payments are usually based on a percentage of revenues earned from slots or other gambling. These voluntary payments have created some confusion. Given that the IGRA specifically prohibits imposition of a state tax on an Indian tribe as a condition of signing a tribal gambling compact, the payments at first glance seem to violate this provision. The distinction, however, is that in order for these voluntary payments to be valid, the state must provide additional value that is distinct from the right of a tribe to operate Class Three gambling in a state. The Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation 
was the first such agreement to include exclusivity payments and provides the clearest example. The tribe was permitted to exclusively operate casino-style Class Three gambling in Connecticut in exchange for a 25% payment of the gross slot machine revenues to the state of Connecticut. The extraordinarily high value of the exclusivity consideration derived from the casino's location in one of the densest and wealthiest populations in the United States. Should the state of Connecticut permit any other party to operate casino-style gambling in Connecticut, the tribe's obligation to pay 25% of its slot revenues would cease, unless the tribe consents, as they recently did for the new Mohegan Sun Casino. But the Mashantucket Pequot tribal nation would still be permitted to operate Class Three gambling. Therefore, the additional agreement in which the state ensures non-competition for the tribe's gambling operation is distinct from the right of the tribe to operate Class Three gambling. Off-Reservation Gambling It is possible for an Indian tribe to operate Indian gambling off existing reservation lands. The general rule under IGRA is that no Indian gambling may occur unless it is located on Indian lands acquired before the enactment of IGRA in 1988. IGRA prohibits the operation of Indian gambling on lands acquired by a tribe and transferred into trust after its enactment in 1988, with the following exceptions. When an Indian tribe was without a reservation when IGRA was enacted, and the newly acquired lands in trust are within the boundaries of the tribe's former reservation, when an Indian tribe purchases off-reservation lands and transfers them into trust after the enactment of IGRA, and it meets certain conditions and obtains certain consents. An Indian tribe is permitted to operate Indian gambling on newly acquired lands that have been transferred into trust and located off an existing reservation when, quote, the Secretary of the Interior, after consultation with the Indian tribe and appropriate state and local officials, including officials of other nearby Indian tribes, determines that a gambling establishment on newly acquired lands would be in the best interest of the Indian tribe and its members, and would not be detrimental to the surrounding community, but only if the governor of the state in which the gaming activity is to be conducted concurs in the secretary's determination. End quote. When an Indian tribe acquires land as settlement of a tribal land claim, or its former reservation lands are restored to trust status, when an Indian tribe acquires an initial reservation as a part of its federal recognition under the federal acknowledgement process. In the eleven years since IGRA's enactment, the Bureau of Indian Affairs has reviewed 10 applications to operate off-reservation casinos in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Council Bluffs, Iowa, two applications for the same parcel of land, Salem, Oregon, Park City, Kansas, Allen Parish, Louisiana, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Detroit, Michigan, Marquette County, Michigan, and Airway Heights, Washington. Of these, the BIA accepted two the Forest County Potawatomi Tribe located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1990, and the Kalispell Tribe located in Airway Heights, Washington in 1998. One application, i.e. Allen Parish, was rendered moot by the tribe's decision to use a site that did not require approval. Three applications, Council Bluffs, Salem, and Detroit, were officially rejected by either the Secretary of the Interior or the State Governor, and the remainder, though not officially rejected, apparently are no longer under active consideration, at least in some cases because of the governor's stated opposition. Proposals for off-reservation tribal casinos do not always reach the formal application stage. For example, off-reservation tribal casinos also have been proposed in Bridgeport, Connecticut, 
Fall River, Massachusetts, Kenosha, Wisconsin, Kansas City, Kansas, Portland, Oregon, Southern New Jersey, and New York's Catskill Mountains. Land acquisition by Indian tribes for non-gambling purposes have been largely focused on reclaiming former reservation land that was alienated in the past. According to Richard G. Hill, chairman of the National Indian Gaming Association, quote, there is really no need for anyone to fear land to trust acquisitions. It's not like Indian nations will ever be able to buy back the entire country. End quote. Class II Mega Bingos Tribes currently operate Class II Mega Bingos that use the telephone lines to operate gambling similar to the current paramutual uses. These are not internet gambling, as the linkages are reservation to reservation and do not involve individual home terminal access. More than 60 tribal governments currently use these forms of technology in the play of interstate-linked Class II bingo games, which are satellite broadcast across the country. These forms of technology are used to broaden the participation levels of these games and attract more people to visit Indian communities. Recommendations 6.1. The Commission acknowledges the central role of the National Indian Gaming Commission, NIGC, as the lead federal regulator of tribal governmental gambling. The Commission encourages the Congress to assure adequate NIGC funding for proper regulatory oversight to ensure integrity and fiscal accountability. The Commission supports the NIGC's new Minimum Internal Control Standards, developed with the help of the National Tribal Gaming Commissioners and Regulators, as an important step to ensure such fiscal accountability. The Commission recommends that all tribal gaming commission work ensures that the tribal gambling operations they regulate meet or exceed these minimum standards, and that the NIGC focus special attention on tribal gambling operations struggling to comply with these and other regulatory requirements. 6.2. The Commission recommends that IGRA's classes of gambling be clearly defined so that there is no confusion as to what forms of gambling constitute Class II and Class III gambling activities. Further, the Commission recommends that Class III gambling activities should not include any activities that are not available to other persons, entities, or organizations in a state, regardless of technological similarities. Indian gambling should not be inconsistent with the state's overall gambling policy. 6.3. The Commission recommends that labor organizations, tribal governments, and states should voluntarily work together to ensure the enforceable right of free association, including the right to organize and bargain collectively, for employees of tribal casinos. Further, the Commission recommends that Congress should enact legislation establishing such worker rights only if there is not substantial voluntary progress toward this goal over a reasonable period of time. 6.4 the Commission recommends that tribal governments, states, and, where appropriate, labor organizations should work voluntarily together to extend to employees of tribal casinos the same or equivalent or superior protections that are applicable to comparable state or private sector employees through federal and state employment laws. If state employee protections are adopted as the standard for a particular tribal casino, then they should be those of the state in which the tribal casino is located. Further, the Commission recommends that Congress should enact legislation providing such protections only if there is not substantial voluntary progress toward this goal over a reasonable period of time. 6.5. The Commission recognizes that under IGRA, 
Indian tribes must annually report certain proprietary and non-proprietary tribal governmental gambling financial information to the NIGC through certified independently audited financial statements. The Commission recommends that certain aggregated financial Indian gambling data from reporting tribal governments comparable by class to the aggregated financial data mandatorily collected from commercial casinos and published by such states as Nevada and New Jersey should be published by the National Indian Gaming Commission annually. Further, the Commission recommends that the independent auditors should also review and comment on each tribal gambling operations compliance with the Minimum Internal Control Standards, MICS, promulgated by the NIGC. 6.6. The Commission recommends that, upon written request, a reporting Indian tribe should make immediately available to any enrolled tribal member the annual, certified, independently audited financial statements and compliance review of the MICS submitted to the NIGC. A tribal member should be able to inspect such financial statements and compliance reviews at the tribal headquarters or request that they be mailed. 6-7. The Commission recommends that tribal and state sovereignty should be recognized, protected, and preserved. 6-8. The Commission recommends that all relevant governmental gambling regulatory agencies should take the rapid growth of commercial gambling, state lotteries, charitable gambling, and Indian gambling into account as they formulate policies, laws, and regulations pertaining to legalized gambling in their jurisdictions. Further, the Commission recommends that all relevant governmental gambling regulatory agencies should recognize the long overdue economic development Indian gambling can generate. 6.9. The Commission has heard substantial testimony from tribal and state officials that uncompacted tribal gambling has resulted in substantial litigation. Federal enforcement has, until recently, been mixed. The Commission recommends that the federal government fully and consistently enforce all provisions of the IGRA. 6.10. The Commission recommends that tribes, states, and local governments should continue to work together to resolve issues of mutual concern rather than relying on federal law to solve problems for them. 6.11. The Commission recommends that gambling tribes, states, and local governments should recognize the mutual benefits that may flow to communities from Indian gambling. Further, the Commission recommends that tribes should enter into reciprocal agreements with state and local governments to mitigate the negative effects of the activities that may occur in other communities and to balance the rights of tribal, state, and local governments tribal members, and other citizens. 6.12. IGRA allows tribes and states to negotiate any issues related to gambling. Nothing precludes voluntary agreements to deal with issues unrelated to gambling, either within or without compacts. Many tribes and states have agreements for any number of issues, e.g. taxes, zoning, environmental issues, natural resources management, hunting and fishing, etc., the Commission recommends that the Federal Government should leave these issues to the states and tribes for resolution. 6.13. The Commission recommends that Congress should specify a constitutionally sound means of resolving disputes between states and tribes regarding Class Three gambling. Further, the Commission recommends that all parties to Class Three negotiations should be subject to an independent, impartial decision-maker who is empowered to approve compacts in the event a state refuses to enter into a Class Three compact, but only if the decision-maker does not permit any Class Three games that are not available to other persons, entities, or organizations of the state, 
and only if an effective regulatory structure is created. 614. The Commission recommends that Congress should adopt no law altering the right of tribes to use existing telephone technology to link bingo games between Indian reservations when such forms of technology are used in conjunction with the playing of Class II bingo games as defined under IGRA. 615. The Commission recommends that tribal governments should be encouraged to use some of the net revenues derived from Indian gambling as seed money to further diversify tribal economies and to reduce their dependence on gambling. End of chapter 6